listeners, and welcome to Monsters Advocate. Monsters Advocate is a bi-weekly podcast focused around the unsung heroes of myths and legends, the monsters. We'll take a look at some monster-centric myths and legends, some not-so-ancient cryptids, and everything in between, and try to sort out possible origin species, biological impetus for why they do what they do, and why we love to hear about them. This episode, try not to think about your skin. Whatever you do, do not use your mind's eye to visualize these creatures and how their many or no appendages might feel against your skin. If you do, you might start to feel itchy. That's because this week we'll be taking a look at a group of lesser-known monsters. These monsters are creatures that don't get a lot of limelight, not because they aren't scary, but because their brand of fear hits a little too close to home. Monsters you don't go looking for, but that find you anyways. The spineless, crawling terrors that are made all the more terrifying by how possible they could be if things were a little different. That's right, it's time to learn about invertebrates in mythology, so fasten those blankets tightly around your neck but make sure you check them first. Dramatics aside, I just want to take a quick second to make sure I give invertebrates a fair chance. I'm using the term invertebrates because this episode will cover a wide variety of mythological creatures, including a pretty famous worm. So arthropods, while appropriate to some of the limier creatures here, does not cover worms. That being said, invertebrate is a pretty big, pretty loose term, just meaning the creature in question has no spine, so it covers a lot of animals. In fact, invertebrates compose about 97% of all animal species, and cover a lot of animals besides insects, including snails, clams, octopuses, crabs, and sea urchins, just to name a few. So, to narrow our focus just a little, We'll have three honorable mentions, two short stories about mythological monsters, and one cryptid that persists despite all evidence to the contrary, and who may have inspired a famous movie monster. First up, the honorable mentions, the scarab, the mantis, and the cicada. The scarab associated with ancient Egyptian mythology refers to Scarabaeus saker, the dung beetle species belonging to Scarabaeidae, a beetle family composed of about 30,000 members. Scarabaeus saker was important to ancient Egyptians because the species naturally mimics aspects of two important gods in the very, very vast Egyptian pantheon. The first god the scarab beetle S. saker is associated with is Keper, the early morning form of the sun god Ra. Keper's job as the early morning sun god wasn't particularly glamorous. In that, for life on Earth to continue to exist, he had to literally get the ball rolling every morning by rolling the sun across the sky. S. Saker is a particularly industrious beetle that likes to take its meals to go, so you can often find them collecting dung into large balls, which they roll to their burrow to consume later. S. Saker is particularly talented at getting these balls into a perfect sphere shape for easy rolling, so the sight of this species rolling their food across the ground made early worshippers associate the struggle of these little arthropods with Keper rolling the sun across the sky. 
The second god associated with S. Saker is associated with this species because of their reproductive strategy. Female S. Saker create a ball of dung in which they lay a single egg. The female then seals the ball back up with the egg inside, and the baby beetle is left to emerge in its own time. Sometimes, other beetles will steal this ball of dung and roll it around, only to have the young beetle emerge from the ball, witness to their crime. Ancient Egyptians observed this and, understandably not being able to distinguish a male beetle from a female beetle, just assumed male beetles reproduced without the need for female beetles, which aligned nicely with their god Atum, who also had children without a partner. There's nothing monstrous about these beetles per se though, so we'll just leave them there. But we won't really be leaving there, because mantises can also be found in Africa. In Egypt, the Egyptian praying mantis was called the birdfly, and was the form taken by a minor god of the dead. In the Book of the Dead, the birdfly is charged with leading the souls of the dead to the underworld. In ancient Greece, the mantis continues its role of guide, but this time to the living, with the widespread belief being that if you were lost on your travels, a mantis could always guide you back home. The way it did this was probably using its soothsaying, which was apparently just another tool mantises have always at their disposal. Can't say I'm surprised by that last one, though. Have you ever really looked at a mantis? Four limbs always together, compound eyes staring off into the distance. Yeah, mantises definitely know something we don't. Our last runner-up is an insect of many talents, the cicada. When not crawling out of the ground every 17 years to scream in deafening swarms, They were out there throughout the ancient world of Greece and Rome, serving as a symbol of resurrection and immortality, and helping people win music contests. Their continuous shrill droning, rather than inspiring irritation, inspired in the ancient Greeks a sense of religious fervor. Greek holy people attributed this incessant noise-making to intoxicated ecstasy, which they attributed to their god Apollo. This theme of musical patronage is furthered by a legend of the ancient Greeks, in where an accomplished musician and singer, Eunomos, was playing his kathara in a competition when one of the kathara strings suddenly snapped mid-note. A kathara only has two strings, so this definitely would have been both literally and spiritually the end for Eunomos, but just then a cicada landed on his kathara and trilled, sustaining the rest of the note with perfect timing and Unimos wins, and presumably, he and the cicada split the winnings, or go on to start a band together. Honestly, the most unrealistic part of all this is not the cicada landing on his kathara and screaming, but that apparently ancient civilizations just could not get enough of that droning. If you don't have cicadas near your home, by the way, this is what they sound like. Now, while annoying and rather large, you can at least rest easy that unless they suddenly become giant, a cicada has little to no ability to do you physical harm. This is, of course, not the case with all arthropods, especially the legier ones. There is a species of centipede named Scolopendra subspinapes, which can be found in warmer, tropical climates. It has many common names, but in Japan this species is commonly referred to as a mukade. This creature can grow up to 20 centimeters, or 7.9 inches long, and has a black body with yellow legs and a stark red head. 
And while I really want to tell you this scary looking creature is actually not all that scary, this is one of those animals where that would actually just be leading you astray. Mukade, you see, are venomous. Another venom can't actually kill someone unless that someone happens to be particularly allergic to them. They are aggressive, active hunters, killing and eating anything they can catch, from insects to small mammals, and they're quick to bite when they feel even the least bit threatened. This ferocious disposition has even inspired a theme in Japanese-related pop culture of evil creatures with long, segmented bodies and too many legs such as Ko the Face Stealer in Avatar The Last Airbender, and more recently the final monstrous form of Raiden the Moon King in the movie Kubo and the Two Strings. The original legend of a giant evil Mukade, though, goes a little something like this. Not far from Kyoto, in the province of Totomi, there was a town called Shijida. Near this town, there's a bridge leading over the Yokatagawa River. Near this bridge once lived a gruesome monster. A huge mukade that was so large it could wrap itself seven and a half times around the hill near the bridge. This mukade was named U-Mukade, and he liked to hunt along the roads made by the army, and many horses and people were devoured on their way to the town. Centipedes preferred to hunt in the dark, and so U-Mukade was especially dangerous at night. One night, He grew so courageous that he even attacked the clan of dragons who lived under the nearby bridge. With their many legs, centipedes are incredibly fast, and so Umukade made short work of all the young dragons in the nest below the bridge, and was in and out before the adult dragons even knew what had happened. Because of this, a grim war between the dragons and the Umukade began. Despite their divine power, though, the dragons could not do anything against the Mukade in his lair under the hill, and so he would simply wait until nightfall when the dragons had to return to their lair under the bridge, and continued to raid the countryside with impunity. That is, until a hero arrived. A man named Tawara Toda heard of the devastation that was being caused by the Umukade and bravely went to the monster's lair to meet it in battle. The Umukade, having eaten many people, was not about to be scared off by a human in a slightly tougher shell, and so the monster lunged directly at Tawara Toda, right as he fired his arrows into the creature's eyes. The first and second arrows dinged off the Umukade's hard shell, but the third, the one Tawara Toda had licked, In Japanese mythology, saliva can have supernatural powers. That arrow flew straight into the creature's eye. The Umukade fell to the ground with a thunderous crash. And when the dragons and ocean gods determined it was finally over, they came to the hero and praised him and told him that he would live for a long time and his kin would have the greatest might on earth. This is how most stories about gigantic invertebrate monsters go. But not all gigantic invertebrates have to be evil. Some can just be chaotic neutral. In the folklore of the Wabanaki people of North America, there exists a creature called the Wiwilamekwa. This monster is a water monster of somewhat indeterminate species. 
The most common consensus is that it's a giant horned snail or leech, but it has also been described as a worm, a slug, or an alligator. It lives in the same waters as horned serpents, but it is slightly less interested in eating people. The following is an account adapted from the Algonquin Legends of New England by Charles G. Leland. In the old times, there was a thriving village with many people. Among them was a handsome young man, and he was very brave and a great hunter. In this same village, there was a beautiful girl named Kalawadazi, who fancied the hunter, but she was proud and high-tempered, and also secretly a witch. Kalawadazi asked the young man to marry her, but he was very busy getting ready for the fall and winter hunt, and marriage was the last thing on his mind. The success of the fall and winter hunts would mean the difference between a winter with plenty of food or a long, hard winter with none. And so he firmly told her, no, he didn't have time to get married. Apparently he must have been a little rude though, because rather than parting on let's be friends terms, Kaliwadazi was angry. And as he turned to go, she said, you may go, but you will never return as you went. And, like all heroes with tragic fates, he gave no heed to her words. Time passed, and the hunting party traveled far away in the woods, far in the north. They made it to about midwinter, when suddenly, the young hunter completely lost it. Far from the village, far from the help of any medicine man, he went raging mad. The witch had worked her magic. Luckily for this young hunter, though, he had with him an elder brother, who was just a little bit braver and fiercer than he was. The hunter's older brother knew a magic spell had been cast on his brother, but he had no magic to fight it with. So, with no other options, the eldest brother did the most desperate thing a Wabanaki could do. He went down to the bank of the river and sang the song which calls the Wee Willamequa. I call on the wee will mick. I call on the terrible one. On the one with the horns. I dare him to appear. And so the wee will came. Its eyes were like fire, and its long horns rose above the elder brother even from the river below. It asked him what he wanted. The elder brother said all he wished was for his brother to be in his right mind again. I will give you what you want, said the wee Willamequa, if you are not afraid. I am not afraid of anything, said the brother. Not of me, said the immense monster coiling just below him. Not of you, nor of the Michihant. The giant frog himself. The gigantic water monster considered the human. If you dare take me by my horns and scrape from one of them with your knife, said the monster, you may have your wish. Now, this wasn't an idle challenge. The wee Willamequa looked his very worst, with his eyes glowing like fire and his gaping mouth below ringed with thousands of very visible teeth. But the man's brother was sick, 
and so he drew his knife and grasped the horns of the Wee-Willamequa. The beast stared up at him from the river, but allowed the man to scrape from the horn till he was told he had enough. "'Go to your camp,' said the great worm. "'Put half of the scrapings in a cup of water. Make your brother drink it.' "'And the other half?' asked the elder brother. The creature huffed out of breath. Give it to the girl who made all this trouble. She needs medicine, too. And with that, the wee Willamequa sunk back into the river. The man returned to camp and gave the drink to his brother, who was back to his usual self in no time. The elder brother told him of his encounter with the water monster, and of the horn scrapings and the instructions of the creature. When the hunt was at an end, they went home, both happy and whole. They arrived back at the village at night. There was an immense lodge in town, and a dance was going on. The younger brother had prepared a cool drink, sweet with maple sugar, fragrant with herbs, and laced with the powder of the horn of the wee Willamequa. The witch was at the dance this night, and, thirsty from dancing, came to the door the brothers were standing by. The younger brother offered her the drink. With a truly astounding lack of self-awareness, she drank the cup dry, and, turning back to her partner, went on in the dance. And then a strange thing happened, for at every turn of the dance she grew older. She began as a young girl, then, at the end of the room, she was 50 years of age, and when she got back to the door where she started, suddenly she fell dead at the floor, at the feet of him who gave her the drink, a little, wrinkled, wizened old woman of a hundred years. And this is the story of the Dance of Death, or, as I like to call it, the story of why you should always get your own drink at parties. Our last creature is a superstar cryptid of the Gobi Desert that absolutely helped inspire the Graboids in the movie Tremors. The Mongolian deathworm is a red, thick-bodied worm that's between 2 and 5 feet long. It lives in the western or southern Gobi Desert. In his 1932 book, The New Conquest of Central Asia, a narrative of the explorations of the Central Asianic expeditions in Mongolia and China, which, by the way, great job with your title, man. A man named Roy Andrews cites Mongolian Prime Minister Damdin Bazar, who in 1922 described the creature. It is shaped like a sausage about two feet long, has no head nor leg, and it is so poisonous that merely to touch it means instant death. It lives in the most desolate parts of the Gobi Desert. The Mongolian deathworm is described by the nomadic tribes in the area as not only extremely venomous, but also possessing electric capabilities. The worm primarily stays underground and burrows through the sand, but if it spots desirable prey, such as an unfortunate nomad or a camel, it can kill from a distance in one of two ways, either by spraying venom at its prey from its mouth or by means of electric discharge from its tail. If the creature is within range, its victim falls over on the spot, instantly dead. A somewhat random detail that I found from multiple sources is that apparently, like sharks, 
The Mongolian deathworm is attracted to the color yellow, and objects sprayed with its venom will turn yellow over time. There have been several expeditions to the Gobi Desert to try and find this worm since the 1990s, including one that tried to use a motorized thumper inspired by the novel Dune to try to bring the creature to the surface. But so far, none have been successful. Or if they have been, we certainly haven't heard back. After all, it is called the death worm for a reason. That's it for invertebrates. If you like this episode, feel free to crawl through the dark corners of the show notes for more info. Intro and outro music, as well as musical score, are done by our resident entomologist, Scott Ethington. Skitter to Bazooka Raccoon at SoundCloud to hear more. Special thanks this episode to our newest $5 patron, Jessica Sparks. Finally, if you like what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes, or consider donating to our Patreon. Every little bit helps, and more support means I'm more motivated to do the best job I can to bring you more monsters. Thank you for listening, and remember, anyone can be a monster.